This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. All right, so Luke, this is our 77th week now in this study together, and uh, we have a very small parable that we're going to be looking at together. So after teaching uh, through several different parables with the Pharisees and others, of course the disciples were probably around too, Jesus here in, in the verses that we're looking at this morning shifts his attention directly to the disciples. And a couple weeks ago, remember last week we had our birthday party celebration. The, the week before that, remember in verses 1 through 6, Jesus was teaching his disciples a lot about temptation and a lot about forgiveness, to which the disciples, one of their more brilliant moments in the New Testament, they ask God for faith. They say in verse 5, increase our faith. And now immediately following this, Luke the author of this, inspired by God, written for us, a gifted historian, gives us this in this very moment of this very precious, vulnerable time that Jesus has with his disciples. Give us faith. And then we have this parable. Still in this moment, Jesus says these words that we have that we're looking at today. So here is this parable that Jesus, uh, in this parable, he's using a first century institution of slavery um, to illustrate a point. And he compares the disciple to that of a doulos, of a, of a slave. And this is a term that Paul considered himself. And if you look at Romans 1, Philippians 1, Titus 1, and then a lot more through his 13 letters and books that he wrote in the New Testament, um, he, he considers himself to be a slave. He considers that disciples are slaves to Christ. And so he's using this illustration of slavery, but that's not to say that Jesus liked slavery or that he thought it was a good thing. In fact, if you consider his teachings, all that we know of modern-day slavery in the history, specifically of the African-American man and woman in America's history, would be completely taught against by Jesus, never at all thinking that it was a good idea at any level whatsoever. But I want you to know that he's simply using something from culture and society to prove a point. And this isn't to be his exhaustive uh, philosophy of slavery. Don't take this as this is what Jesus thinks systematically of what slavery is. He's using it as an illustration. And it's not quite the form of slavery that, that, that we think is so horrible um, in America's history either. Um, but okay, so, so now most of us as Christians, uh, we know that, that, that we are to serve God. Even if you're not a Christian and you're this morning, you probably think, yeah, that sounds right. Christians are to uh, serve God and obey God. But the question that I have for us this morning is, what, what is the attitude that we should have within ourselves when we are obeying God, when we're serving God, when we're walking in Christian obedience? What should our heart's disposition be? How do we know if our heart's in the right place? Because after all, we could do the right thing like the Pharisee and it not be acceptable, it not be what it needs to be. So what's the motive? What's the heart? Well, this little parable that's unique to Luke is going to tell us a lot about what a disciple should have going on in their heart as they serve and obey God. So as I start here, I want to begin with two questions for you to consider. And I really want you to think through this. I'm going to give you a second to think about it. But two questions I want you to consider. One is, what does God owe you? Think to yourself, what does God owe you? 
What does God owe you? Think about that. And the second question is, what do you owe God? Think about it. Think about it one more time for those who haven't. What does God owe you? And what do you owe God? You see, the answer to these questions reveals what we believe about Jesus. The answer to these questions reveals how healthy our hearts are at understanding grace, at grasping the gospel. The answer to these questions are also going to help us discover whether our hearts are in the right place in our Christian obedience. There are many of us who go through life thinking that God owes us something. And then we're going to spend a lot of time complaining and kind of having an Eeyore mentality like, woe is me when God fails to deliver what I need, when I need it. And if he would just get his act together and know me better and give me what I really need, things would go so much easier. Even when I get what I want, there's always something I can complain about. This is the heart and disposition of a lot of us, if we're really honest. But not everybody's this way. Some people have a more humble spirit about themselves. They have a more thankful disposition that they live from. Their heart is that of gratitude. And these people understand that God doesn't owe them anything. And even the smallest little blessings and good things that he gives are just grace. Everything that God does for this type of person they see is completely undeserved. And it, it, it just warrants praise and, and thankfulness. You see, the condition of our hearts, whether our hearts have humble praise or hearts that are proud and entitled, largely depends on what we think God owes us and what we think we owe to God. And so in our text this morning, we're going to learn a little bit more about this from this little, little parable. Again, that's unique to Luke. I think there's a lot that it has for us. So let's look and let's get to work in Luke 17, starting in verse 7. So we'll... Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him, when he's coming from the field, when he's coming from the farm, will you say this? Come immediately and recline at table with me. Come and let's eat. So you've got this employee, this servant who's out working. He's digging and plowing crops. He's tending and leading a flock. And then after a long day's work, a full day's work, he's finished up out in the fields. Will you, the master, will you, the boss, say, come and rest let me now work and let me fix you some supper or prepare you supper. So the answer to this rhetorical question is no. None of you would do this. None of you who had a servant like this would do this. So the house here in this parable, apparently it's not a wealthy one because there's one employee, there's one servant who's doing all the work. But the point isn't about money. The point isn't about financial security. The point isn't about hiring more servants to lighten the load, it's, it's about a sense of duty, of responsibility that a worker is to have. It's about a mentality that this worker is to have, a disposition that this servant is to have. It's a posture of their heart towards their master. And Jesus gets more to the point in verse 8, will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, dress properly, serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Does he thank the servant because he obeyed the orders? Jesus is like, you know, actually you would say to the servant, go clean up, shower, dress properly, and then prepare me a meal. 
Serve me while I sit and relax and rest and while I eat and drink. And then after I'm finished, you're more than happy to, to eat and drink and take care of yourself. You see, the, the master's wishes are prioritized. They must come first. And so leaning into the main idea here, I'm reminded of two passages like Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these other things will be added to you. Or earlier in Luke chapter 9 and verse 23, he says to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow, follow me. Not you, follow me. So then here's the application of the parable. Jesus breaks it down for his disciples in verse 10. So you also, when you have perfectly obeyed, when you have performed, when you've obeyed, when you've done all that you were commanded, don't pick and choose, right? But do when you've done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We're not deserving of any special praise. We have only obeyed and done what? We're obligated to do. We've only done what was our duty, what we were indebted to perform. Disciples, when, when you've done all that you've been given, when you've completed all that's been commanded for you to accomplish, when you've, been, when you've fully completed all that has been ordered for you to do, may it be in your heart, may your heart reflect this, not just with your words, but would your heart say, I'm a servant, I'm an unworthy servant, and I've only done what was my duty. I've only done what you have commanded me to do. He's saying, disciples, may this be the humble climate of your heart as you obey. In other words, simply put, The big idea that Jesus says in our obedience is not our service and our obedience, but the big idea is what my master has done for me and what he asks of me. And it only makes sense to do because of what my master has already accomplished for me. So the point as best as I can understand it here with this parable is that the heart of the obedient, healthy Christian should be to reflect a sense of humility before God as they live the Christian life. And I believe that this humility before God only comes from a deep, uh, authentic sense of self, where we're self-aware. And this self-awareness only comes from a deep sense of knowing God. And so here, Jesus is encouraging and guiding his disciples to live as humble servants to God, not proud, not entitled, which would be much more uh, in lines with who the Pharisees were and how they carried themselves. In regards to this, I love uh, the passage that Paul gives us in Romans 12, 1 and 2, where he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is easy to get a tattoo of. It's easy to memorize. It's easy to have on a coffee mug. It's easy to think that this is something that's simple, easy, clean. But this is profound. A living offering, a living sacrifice. It is Galatians 2.20, like what Scott Peterson just quoted to us. For me to live is Christ, not me. The the life I now live in the flesh, I live for him. It's not, not for me. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, 
by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice committed to him and not to yourself that is holy and acceptable to God and this is your spiritual worship and do not be conformed to this world where you're living for yourself but be transformed where you're living for God by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God is what is good and acceptable and perfect And here is one of those instances where I prefer the rendering and wording of the the King James Version, the one that I memorized it in And when I was a little boy, Romans 12, 1. I beg you, I beseech you, I plead with you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. In other words, it just, it just makes sense to live this way, a living sacrifice, a living offering, one dead to their rights. It just makes sense to live this way, given all that God has done. But now what about you? What's your heart's disposition to God this morning? Is this the way that you see things? Does this resonate or does this offend you? I, I really encourage you to be honest. Don't put on your Sunday best on the inside and say the right thing don't try to say it enough to where you convince yourself that it's what you really mean be honest with yourself be honest with God practically speaking today are you living not my will but thine be done or are you practically living my will or else I will follow God until it doesn't really make that much sense and then I'm out. Once once it gets difficult, I'll follow God until it gets inconvenient, until it touches a little bit on my comfort, and then it just doesn't make sense because it's not really what he wants from me, right? You see, the Christian who is growing in their awareness of the gospel, of what God has done for them through the finished work of Jesus Christ, a Christian who's growing in their awareness of the gospel, they will consider anything that God leads them to as necessary and even very small compared to what Jesus Christ has done for them, compared to what God has given them. But again, I want to think about you. I'm concerned for you, every one of us. Ask yourself, is this the way that you're thinking? Like, do you think this way? Are you thinking this way? Or are you sitting there thinking, how can you say that, Jeremy? Like, what on earth has been done for you for you to be okay with having this humble, pleasant attitude towards serving God, regardless of what he may ask? How's that not demeaning? How's that not robbing you of your worth? How's that not degrading to who you are as a person? That no matter what he says you have to do, how are you indebted to God at this level? What do you mean you're obligated and indebted? Let's consider the text. This passage before us this morning, the situation that Jesus describes here would have been unthinkable. It's such a rhetorical, like everything he asked and all the answers, everyone knew. Verse 10 is what shocked them. But everybody in, in, this, in this setting around Jesus, these disciples, this situation that Jesus presents in parable form would have been unthinkable. You see, when people, people then, they, they saw themselves as who they were, their place in life, and they never really tried to move on beyond it. It was a lot like the caste system in Hinduism. They were very aware of their place in life. And, and back then, like having an invitation to a master's table was a very high social privilege. 
and to recline at table or to share a meal, it literally meant that you were becoming family with them. Like they saw you as that intimate, like we're family. And by the way, masters didn't prepare dinner for their servants. That never happened. Even after a long day's work out in the fields, a servant would have done his duty at dinner time. The day was not over. They would not have seen their day as over. It wouldn't have even been in their mind that the day is now over. They would have easily cleaned up and waited hand and foot on their master. That was normal. That was reasonable expectations. The master wasn't there to serve the servant. It was the complete other way around. It's not the master's responsibility to see that the servant's life is easier. It's the servant's responsibility to, to work hard so the master experiences an easier life. Now, here's some perhaps uh, modern-day examples that help uh, make this understandable a little bit as I was thinking through this this week. So imagine um, if you're not staying for Access, Access Basics, you're going to have to go get a meal somewhere, right? So if you're not prepared at home and you're not hanging out at Access, which you should stay for Access Basics, a lot of fun, uh, you're going to go buy dinner sometime today or tomorrow. And imagine coming up, this waiter or waitress server comes up to you and they have their, uh, that thing and their, their pen and, um, and they ask you instead of saying, hey, I'm here to take you, or if they're really good, they don't have it and they're just going to try to no, I'm good. You don't want to write that, that down? It's like, no, I'm good. And it's never right. right. Just write it down. Don't be cool. It's cool to get my order right, right? Um, anyway, they come to your table, and they're like, look, <clears throat> I'm really tired. Um, I'm a great server, by the way. I'm one of the best here. Um, it's just really been a long day already. Could you go back to the kitchen and get me some, some chicken wings? Um, with some barbecue sauce, and I'll take a Diet Coke with a, lim- with a lemon on the, on the side, if you don't mind getting me a lemon. And they sit down at your table. You'd be like, what? Like some of y'all who are into that would just go Facebook Live in less than three seconds, and you'd be like, y'all will not believe what's happening. Or imagine a realtor. Imagine you bought a home, and when you, when you move into your new house, you're so excited, you just closed that morning, the moving truck's there, and you realize your realtor's there. They had a key. They've moved in already that morning, and they're living there. How awkward that would be. I mean, she helps you find the place, so she kind of deserves the right to live there, right? Now, obviously, no, that doesn't happen. This is ridiculous. If a, if a server or realtor actually tried to do this, they would lose their job. The reason is simple. It's their job to bring food and find a house and to do their job well. And yet, this does not mean that they have a right to be treated like a member of the family. A servant who excels at serving is still a servant, and that doesn't mean they have the right to become the master, nor demand things of the master. And according to Jesus, the same thing is true in our relationship with God through this parable. So here's here's the spiritual application that Jesus gives here. So you also, verse 10, when you've done all that you were commanded, say, we're unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. Let this be the disposition of your heart as you're pursuing Christian obedience. But now others take a different approach, complete opposite approach. A lot of us think that the things that we do for God earn us extra credit. It's like a Disney fast pass in prayer maybe, right? If I do these things, when I ask, he'll do this for me like probably quicker if I, if I don't do this, right? And if I, if I pursue these things and if I'm active in Christian obedience and fill in my calendar with Christian things, listen to Christian music and so forth, then I'm always going to have enough money. That's how this works, right? If we live this way, 
what we really mean is that we're, we're doing these things in expectation that God's going to now do his job and he's going to carry out his end of the bargain on his end of the deal. And then we're going to actually experience a life of, of better blessing in all that we do. And so we obey in hopes that we're going to get something better. We do something in order to get something better. It's like kind of like uh, playing the lottery. I'm doing this in hopes of getting something bigger and better in return. But remember, this was the common thought of the Pharisees, the religious leaders during this time that Jesus was doing his ministry. Reflect back with me to a moment of the prodigal son. You remember four weeks ago? The Pharisees there were much like the older brother. You know, you had the younger brother who rebelled, the older brother who stayed, and they both were prodigals. They both were not in the right place with the father. The older brother or the Pharisees, for sake of analogy, when they came in from the field, so to speak, they wanted their father to celebrate their obedience. Remember? I've always been here. I've never not obeyed. They wanted the father to, to appreciate their faithfulness. They wanted to be known for their goodness. You see, we often come to God the same way. We feel like we deserve something better than what we're getting. And unfortunately, what makes things more confusing is you can find preachers and teachers that will give you this narrative. And they'll, they'll teach you about a Jesus that doesn't exist, that, that is merely there to help you discover uh, the, the, the best way of getting stuff out of your life today, which of course really ends up making God the servant of our own desires. And this is a Jesus, but it's not the real Jesus. Maybe we'll consider him the lottery Jesus. And to illustrate this point of motive in our obedience, I want to tell you a story about the carrot and the horse, and you might be aware of this. So there was this king who was over this sovereign territory, and he divvied out certain responsibilities, tasks, and resources to the people of his kingdom. This, this gardener of his kingdom was very faithful, and man came across this carrot. Now, we don't flip out about carrots because most of us aren't gardeners, but if you saw a carrot that was like this carrot, you would respond the way he did. Man, he saw this carrot, and, and he dug it up, and he thought, this is the most beautiful carrot I've ever seen in my life. I've never grown one. I've never seen one at the farmer's market. Never in my life have I seen a carrot like this. My king deserves this carrot. My king needs this. Like he, it's his resources. It's his generosity. It's his protection that he provides over us in this kingdom. I've got to give it to him. So he rushes in. He bows before the king. He's like, king, oh king, I've grown this carrot in your kingdom, and I have to give this to you. Like, look at this. Sir, look at this carrot. Is this not beautiful? And, man, the king was taken back. He's like, you know, one, he didn't have to tell me, but two, the passion. Like, this guy, he loves gardening. He's a fantastic gardener. You know what? In response to your generosity and faithfulness, I'm going to give you four times the acreage. I'm going to give you two more employees to work along with you. I'm going to give you more seeds, more land, more responsibility. Your, your generosity and faithfulness just needs to be commended. Thank you. Oh my goodness, the, the gardener went away rejoicing, celebrating like any of us would. This is fantastic. Off to the side, there was this horseman that noticed everything that just happened. And he thought to himself, my goodness, if a king would do that over a carrot, what would he give for a good horse? So he slips out. He finds the, you know, the best horse he has, nothing exceptional. And he's like cleaning it up real quick. And he comes in. He's like trying to perform. It's like, okay, uh, king, oh, king, I've got this horse. It's a great horse. Look, it's the best horse. Never in all my years have I seen a better horse. And when I saw this horse, I just thought, my king's got to have this horse. Here's this horse. 
Well, the king, being a good, wise king, he observed what was happening. He knew what was going on. He says, thank you. He was dejected. He kind of you know, turned, was going to walk away. He just lost his best horse. And, <laughs> <clears throat> and the king noticed, of course. He called the horseman back. And he says, let me, let me tell you the difference between you and the gardener. He said, the gardener gave me the carrot. You gave yourself the horse. The gardener gave me the carrot because it was in his heart to give me this. But you were giving yourself the horse in hopes it would give you something better. So you really weren't giving me the horse. Now, that applied to your understanding of the Christian life would change everything in your hearts. That applied to your relationships, your friendships, with roommates, with spouses, with children, with bosses, with extended family, with any, any relationship in your life. You apply the carrot and the horse, it gut checks your motives for why you do what you do. Side note, specifically in marriage, when you don't get what you think you deserve from your spouse and you begin to name off all the things that you've been doing right, it reveals you never were doing them for them out of love to begin with. You were only doing them for yourself. And you want to barter. You clean because it's going to help you get what you want. It's not because you want to be a faithful spouse and help lighten the load for the family. You see what I mean? It changes everything. It gets to the heart. And that's what Jesus is after right here. You see, the truth is that God doesn't owe us anything. And, and to be honest, and I hope this... I know this is going to probably sound harsh, and I, and I want you to really think through this with me. It's not intended to offend. But the reason we feel like God owes us something is because we're a very selfish, self-righteous people. And we honestly think we've really done something special for God and that he deser it's deserved for him to be better to us. And we secretly hope that all the good things that we've been doing will gain us leverage with him and it really makes us mad when he doesn't give us what we feel like he should give us because we've been doing this and this and this, which is the horse and not the carrot. Practically, our Christian faith then becomes like a Jesus-laced karma, a moralistic, motivated genie in a bottle. And we end up seeing ourselves living the Christian life as like God's little elves. And if we work hard enough and do enough good, that Santa, or I mean God, will let us ride on his sleigh as he delivers good gifts to my house, to my bank account, to my health, and to my kids. But here's two biblical facts before we go any farther this morning. One, God does owe us something. Judgment, wrath, and death. He owes that to us. That's justice, that's fair, it's reasonable, warranted, deserved, earned. Judgment, wrath, and death. And the second thing, second fact, even if we could do everything that God ever wants us to do perfectly, we will have only done our duty. Nothing special, nothing exceptional. If you could live from this point on perfectly, it would just be reasonable. 
It would be what's expected. It wouldn't be breaking the headline news in heaven. You see, our good things, our good works, they, they don't, they can't earn us any favor from God. Only Jesus can earn us anything, and He never was required to. God is not moved by our obedience, but God is moved by Christ's obedience on our behalf. And this is the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Romans 3 speaks of this in 22 and following. For there is no distinction. There's no, there's no one really different from anybody else. We're all the same here. There's no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Adam and Eve earned this. We've carried the ball faithfully earning this ever since, all throughout history. We have earned this sin, this falling short. This is us. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But we are justified by His grace as a gift we're made righteous by God through His grace as a gift. It's not earned. It's a gift. It's given as a gift. How? Not through your obedience, but through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus being the one whom God graciously put forward to take on what you've earned, to bear the responsibility of what you deserve. Judgment, wrath, and death. Friends, that's the cross of Christ. On the cross, He's taking on what you and I deserve. Judgment, wrath, and death. He put Jesus Christ there in our place as our propitiation, our wrath absorber, our punishment sponge. By your obedience, by your goodness, by His blood. And this is to, like a gift, be received. Not earned, to be received by faith. I love the way Colossians 2 puts it, 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your sins and trespasses. To be clear, dead people don't do really anything impressive. And you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, not being who God requires, or to use an Old Testament um, practice, the uncircumcision of your flesh. God, to you dead folk, has made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt. Remember I said we're indebted? He's canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. In other words, our disqualification, our guilty verdict. This He set aside by nailing it to the cross, by nailing His Son to the cross. This He set aside by nailing His Son, Jesus Christ, to the cross. And 1 Peter 2 speaks of this. Jesus Himself took on what we have earned. Jesus Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It's not by your wounds that you've been healed. It's not by your journey that you've been healed. It's not by your perfection that you've been healed. It's by His wounds, friends, that you have been healed. For you were like sheep who were straying, but now that you've healed, you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You see, what this means is not one of our best Christian activities or habits or disciplines or even all the good works combined. None of this gives us the right to enjoy God, life, or heaven. None of it. And if these things could give us the right to have God back in our lives, then the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus was for nothing. Nothing. 
This is what Jesus is speaking to when he says that you're an unworthy servant. He means that we don't have any merit or goodness of our own, not in the way that it's required, not in what's needed. In other words, when it comes down to our obedience and our service to God as Christians, is God never gets a positive return in his investment. I mean, he's, he's our creator, he's our redeemer, and in and through Jesus Christ, he performs this work in us. Therefore, he already has the right to all of our allegiance. And we can't, but even if we could give him a perfect record of obedience and perfect service, again, we would only be giving him what he demands and what he, what he deserves. You see, God still demands perfect obedience. Today, God demands perfect obedience, constantly and always. This is why the representative work of Jesus on our behalf is still so vitally important for us today. This is why we continue to make much of Jesus, acknowledging that he has earned for us what is required. He fulfilled the righteous requirement of a perfect life of the law there for us. And so God is our master. Jesus is our Lord. And by God's grace alone, we get to be servants of God. Christian, can you believe this? Like, what a blessing, what a celebration we should experience realizing that we can be a servant of God. I mean, a healthy Christian is one who finishes their labors in the field, sprints over to the house, prepares the dinner for their master, and does so with tears of joy, not nervous anxiety. They're excited, and it's with a humble heart, a grateful heart, tears of joy because of what they get to do, that out of all the masters in the world, their master has called them to himself, and they get to serve the God of the universe. They get to serve Him. They get to live for Jesus. This should be the thrill of the Christian, not the burden of the Christian. J.C. Ryle, Bishop J.C. Ryle said this, He that desires to be saved must confess that there is no good thing in him and that he has no merit, no goodness, no worthiness of his own. He must be willing to renounce his own righteousness and to trust in the righteousness of another, even Christ the Lord. But how difficult it is to renounce our own righteousness. If you've been a Christian for five minutes, you know that this is the hardest thing in the world. What a slow and painful death our flesh has to die. But Christian, it's worth it. And this is known as our sanctification. It's like the already and not yet of our salvation. You've already been justified, but you're being sanctified. Already, not yet. This sanctifying effect where we're dying to ourselves and our sinful desires and we're learning to live to Christ, live life to Christ, live life for God, learning what He desires for me. So Christian, look at God. Like, Christian, you have God back in your life. Look at Jesus on the cross. He endured that for you. Look at death and fear it no more. Be reminded this is worth it. And it is, it is so difficult for us to truly and fully admit that we deserve nothing good from God and that anything good that we ever do is only by the grace of God active in our lives. Martin Luther, the great reformer, spoke of this. He said, even though we are in faith, the heart is always ready to boast of itself before God and say, after all, I have preached so long and lived so well and done so much, surely he's going to take this into account. But when you come before God, leave all that boasting at home. And remember to appeal from justice, do away with that, to grace. 
I myself have been preaching grace for almost 20 years and I still feel the old clinging dirt of wanting to deal so with God that I may contribute something so that he'll have to give his grace in exchange for my holiness. Still, I cannot get it into my head that I should surrender myself completely to sheer grace. Yet this is what I should and must do. This is the point of the parable. This is the call to us this morning. And be reminded of this. When we finally do surrender completely, like he's speaking of here, to the grace of God, when our eyes open to the glory of the gospel, we make the most amazing discovery. It's in the gospel that you realize that though we did not deserve it, Jesus did exactly what the master never does in this parable. He made himself the servant of our salvation. Now, you might remember how Jesus hinted at this back in Luke chapter 12. When, when he told the parable about the master who dressed for service, remember that? And then he invited his servants in to recline at his table and then began to serve them dinner. You see here in our passage, Jesus is teaching his disciples about his own future grace that they will experience through his life, death, and resurrection. After all, later on in Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 26, Jesus, he, he deals with the disciples and he says, Let the greatest among you become as the youngest. Let the leader as the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? Right, yeah, that's normal, that's cultural. But I'm among you as the one who serves. Jesus Christ is the worthy servant and master. And he's asking you to do what he modeled perfectly for us. He proved what a worthy servant he was to the Father by living a perfect life as us, going to the cross and suffering for our sins as us, serving us to his very death. And now he asks us to come into his family, to the family of God, inviting us to sit at the banquet table of his joy and kindness, something that we should never feel that we deserve. I don't believe any of us are going to get to heaven one day and think, this is fair. Pretty much what I felt like I deserved when I got here. A little bit too warm, lights are a little bit too bright, but this will do. If we're not going to be that then, let's not be that way now, right? When we see ourselves as who we really are and see God for who He really is, you will accurately say in verse 10, we are unworthy servants and we've only done what is our duty. This isn't false modesty. It's not cloaked humility. I'm just an unworthy servant. It's not just trying to come across in a certain way. It's a statement of truth from our heart. How little we have done for God, infinitely less than what He deserves. Christian, I want you to remember this in 1 Peter 2. You, Christian, are a chosen race. Think about that. You are a royal priesthood. You have been invited into a holy nation, a people for his own possession. This is all his working and his doing. But he did this so that you might obey, so that, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Remember, once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, therefore I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, this not being your home, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, representing 
unbelievers. Keep it honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. To point out what should be obvious to our gospel-informed hearts, it doesn't say abstain from the passions of the flesh. It doesn't say keep your conduct clean so that you'll be brought out of darkness into light. Obey so that you can no longer be a people, but a people. No longer receive mercy, but receive mercy. He starts with the truth of the already accomplished for you and says, now in response to this, live as God's children. Because you've been invited as family, act like your dad. Live this out. You see, to put it this way, is the truth of the gospel is that God sent Jesus to do the work so that we could rest. In other words, Jesus worked the six days, to borrow creation's narrative, Jesus worked six days so that we could have Sabbath forever. And now, in response to this, not to get a response, but in response to this, it makes sense that we do whatever it is that he asks us to do. Knowing that his heart is this always, saying, come to me, all who are weary, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'm going to give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. This is the Christian life here. I'm gentle. I'm lowly in heart. You're going to find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. This is the Christian life. But from the outside, window shopping the Christian life, this sort of obedience, it looks like duty. It looks like work. But from the inside, once you've personally experienced forgiveness of your sins and new life in Christ, obedience is delight. It's a thrill. It's pleasure. And so friends who who are on the outside, I'm asking you to look at the real Jesus and and consider what he's done for you and the joy that is, is before you as you embrace Christ and live out what it is that you were created to live out, the purpose behind your life that can only be found in God. So Christians, remember that the heavy lifting's already been done by Christ. And I believe that the more we mature in his word, the more we will take delight in Christian obedience and the more fun we're going to have. So I encourage you to seek to do God's will. Respond in Christian obedience, not because it's exciting, but it is an adventure. Not because it's going to meet your needs, but you will find joy. Seek to do God's will, not because you understand it all right now, though eventually it'll become more clear. Seek God's will today in Christian obedience because he's your Lord and Savior, and you're not. And he's commanded you to do these things, and it's for your good. And if you obey him, if you do these things, even in the little things, if you do this, you're going to know him better. If you do this, you're going to know more about yourself. If you do this, you're going to find grace. If you do this, you're going to understand more what it looks like to love your neighbor and even serve your enemy. You're going to learn how to better honor God as your master. You're going to become more human as you follow God in this way. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this little parable, Lord, that is just loaded with so much truth. And it honestly, it, it knocks us in the gut a little bit, seeing the, the motive there and the, the heart behind what we do. Lord, I pray that, that, that we see your heart for, uh, for our hearts to be authentic and to respond in authenticity, Lord, with the proper motive, understanding what you've accomplished. And so I ask that you work in our hearts, stirring in us a self-awareness and a, and a God-awareness, Lord, and, and, and more aware of what you've done through the gospel so that it begins to, Lord, become more of the natural reflex to to worship you in our Christian obedience, to where it becomes less of a duty 
and much more of a delight, where Christian life becomes more fun and, and less fear. So God, help us as we look at the gospel this morning and stare at what you've done for us and hear what it is that you want for us and desire for us. And I pray that your spirit does in our hearts the work that, that you intend, Lord, through this special time together. Lord, thank you for this. In Christ's name, amen. This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.